Welcome back to another episode of Two Sharp Chefs and a Microphone. I'm Lorraine Moss. And this is Louis Victor. And today we're talking Master Sommelier. Just the name, Master Sommelier. Sexy, right? Oh my God. You don't even know. (laughs) So a sommelier, for those of you who don't know, is a wine steward. Mm -hmm. Um, In our case, working in restaurants, a sommelier will direct you to the great wine pairings, maybe show you new grapes that you've never heard of before, pair great things with your meal that don't, you know, don't counteract the flavor of what you're eating. Or enhances. Or enhance it, exactly. So we're going to start with a quote from uh, one of my husband's favorite comedians, Jerry Seinfeld. He says, quote, can't we just get rid of wine lists? Do we really have to be reminded every time we go out to a nice restaurant that we have no idea what we are doing? Why don't they just give us a trigonometry quiz with the menu? That's funny. <laughs> and, and I feel like a lot of people feel like that. Know. You know, it's, it's, maybe we might have like a little bit more wine knowledge working in the food and beverage industry. Maybe not, some of us. Uh, but I feel like a normal person who wants to have a good meal and try wine has no idea. No. No clue. Just give me a red, give me a white, give me a Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. They have no clue. So a master sommelier. Now we're taking it to a level that's beyond compare. They're sort of the Bruce Lee of wine. They're wine ninjas. I was going to say. Basically. (laughs) Kung Fu master. So according to the Court of Master Sommeliers, one must have a, quote, proven mastery of the art, science, and history of wine. And just real quickly before we inter- uh, we introduce our guest today, how prestigious is this title, Louis? According to the this is Court of, of Master Sommeliers, there is 165 professionals who have earned the title of Master Sommelier as part of America's chapter since the organization's inception. Of those, 139 are men and 26 are women. So there's 262 professionals worldwide who have received the title of Master Sommelier since the first Master Sommelier diploma exam in the UK in 1969. So that's 50 years ago. So 262 in the entire world. Out of 7 billion people. In 50 years. Right. So that's what we're talking when we talk about Master Sommelier. Mm -hmm. Um, So speaking of one of the 262 professionals worldwide. We have Ira Harmon with us, Master Sommelier from Southern Glaciers Wine and Spirits. Welcome, Ira. Thank you. And yes, there, there is only, would you say 162 here? Yeah, 165. 165, yeah. with a lot of those coming in the last three years, really. We've wow. had a big uptick. What right. do you think that's, what do you think the reason is that? Well, I think, uh, first of all, the exam is very difficult. Um, it's supposed to be one of the hardest uh, exams in the world, and I think it is. Uh, but people are studying more. That's the hardest thing for us as master sommeliers to mentor people, is to get them to study. And mm-hmm. it goes quite deep in all facets of the wine industry. Right. And don't forget, it's not just about wine. It's about spirits. Beers. It used to be about cigars because uh, tobacco can be oh, fermented. Wow. wow, interesting. I don't doubt that in the future tea will be, have a little bit more involvement as well. Right. So my understanding is that the Master Sommelier exam is the fourth exam in 
the progression. That right. is correct. And so I'm, I'm sure a lot of us that are listening have seen the documentary Psalm. Yeah. It's very popular. And it's so interesting to me to just get a glimpse of the knowledge that right. master sommeliers or people who want to be master sommeliers have. They're just, they're the Yodas of wine. It's like they can take a sip and not only, you know, know the top notes and the medium notes and the bottom notes, but no. they're going back to the soil in 1976. Yeah. How do you even try to study for something like that? Well, there are three facets to the examination. And today, uh, a few years back, we switched it so that the people had to pass their theory in order to come in and take both the service and the tasting. Mm -hmm. We found a lot of people weren't studying. Hmm. So now they have to study yeah. in order to, to go on. So, and and it's, studying is just, it's studying. You have to really get deep and uh, you have to write everything down. You have to get really good with maps. And there's a lot of detail to it. But people enjoyed tasting and they enjoyed service because service is nothing more than being on stage. Right. I took my first level. It was insane. <laughs> so imagine three levels later. It was insane. It was so insane I didn't take it. I didn't even think of taking the second level because I'm like, okay, I'm good here. <laughs> right? So how do you, what kind of memory tricks do you employ? Are, are there tricks? Are there ways to remember? Well, there to are remember? a few of those, but, um, and, and people do come up with, uh, with little names. Um, there is one, uh, it's for the large bottles of... Uh, of oh, the sizes, uh, sizes like Goliath right. and all that? Just remove my socks before Nookie would become Jeroboam, <laughs> Rehoboam, uh, Methuselah, yeah. uh, Salmazar, Balthasar, Balthazar, before Nookie, Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. Okay, so for those yeah, of you... I've never forgot one. that one. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, uh, there are different sizes of wine bottles. So most people see that standard size. There's a half of that, but then it goes all the way up to the top. Ginormous. How many servings in the... Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, I think that's a 19 liter. I didn't look that up, but it's... Um, Enough for a, a wedding big, party. Yes. Yeah. Or two. You need a couple of people to lift that thing. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> when you come to large format wines, I think you have to get a dispenser with that. Which they have at Bazaar, where yeah. you work. Yes. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that so bottle, by the way, is different. That's a 27 liter. Oh, okay. And that's, uh, that's a huge bottle. So uh, those are specially made, and I do believe that uh, the first six cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $5,000 just right? for the empty bottles. I oh, think wow. Chef Alex, the executive chef there, told what's, me that. It's, what's the size of that? What it's amazing. 27 liter, and okay. it does have a name, and it's not really Is coming not to me right now. No, they're all named after Persian kings. How about king? Oh, that's where the yeah, strange... Yeah, yeah. Pronunciations why, come why, from. Why Persian kings? I have no idea. I, I don't remember. I probably read about it yeah. years ago, but... 27 liters Aladdin. Yeah. Okay, so my opinion, spitters are quitters. <laughs> <laughs> but that's my opinion. Not do if you... you're trying to pass the masters. <laughs> so do you really spit everything all the time when you're tasting, or do you kind of choose which ones you want to swallow? How, how does that work? Actually, we recommend that they taste, uh, in, in the final tasting, that they drink the wine. Because okay. it gives you a little bit more, um, it gives you a little bit more idea of the presence of oak. 
if you get it to finish. No, but if we're just doing a regular tasting, yes. I mean, some of us taste 200, 300 wines a day or you would die you know, in a weekend. But yes. You just can't. <laughs> yeah, nobody can. I just ran into that in Aspen. Um, there was a great tasting with wines all the way back to 1934. And that was one that I had just gone there. And I know better because I used to live in Colorado. But coming back into Colorado and getting off of the truck, the moving truck, and into the tasting. And then I didn't want to spit any of those great wines. It's not often that I have those great wines. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, the next morning, I once again... You paid the learned, price. Oh, yes, I did pay the <laughs> price. Oh, my. So I read, tell, a little, tell us a little bit about how you got here. Because I feel like we know there are not a lot of master sommeliers. We mm -hmm. know that. It's a fact. And obviously a very large commitment. We couldn't commit past... No, one. Dude, so I how do you get to this place where you think, you know what, I'm going to be a master sommelier? Well, that was a uh, happenstance, really. Um, it was 1989, and I was working in a restaurant in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, kind of just because I loved it, um, and going through kind of like a middle-age crisis. I had been working in real estate, and I had a couple little companies because in the mountain towns and resorts, you have to do more than one thing in order to make a living because it's not consistent throughout the year. Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. Lake Tahoe is like that. Yeah, exactly. And um, so we had a customer come in on table five, what was table five then, and he said, you call yourself a sommelier. How, did you take a test? And I said, no, I kind of just inherited it. But it got me thinking. And then miraculously, two weeks after that, I read in the Wine Spectator about a test being given in Monterey. And so I talked to my boss and I said, listen, I know March is big for us, but can you spare me for a week so I can drive out to Monterey and take this test? And I got there and first of all, I misread, which you shouldn't do. I, I read 890 pages on the way out there with my little fly fishing. Oh light. yeah, not recommended. And I do have, <laughs> I do have, a, a, I had a pretty good memory, at least at that time. This is over 20, 30 years ago now. Um, and so I went out there and they didn't have a spot for me. So I, I sat up on the second level with the masters and then after lunch, they created another little spot for me. But um, I found out I, I had enough to push on to the next level. I got the third highest score. So I took the next level, which was the advanced level, and this was in March, and I took that in May in Chicago. And I failed, and it came down to two points. And we all knew about this little trick in service where you had to clear the ashtray. Today, huh. we, we don't have to yeah, deal with Yeah, it's not an those. issue. It's yeah. not an issue any longer. But in the, in the mise en place, there was only an ashtray. And, you know, your nerves get so, you know, this actually at that time it meant a lot. It still does to these kids today. And um, so I went back to Torquay, England in the fall, and I passed. So I caught up with, with my original class. And there were seven or eight of us that actually became master sommeliers out of that first class. Uh, some of them, one of them went on to, uh, while I was in Torquay, England, he was in London taking his master's, and he had just went well, boom, boom, boom. But at, at every level, it's like 
peeling an onion, you, you just have to keep peeling to get all that information. And by the time I got through my first year, I decided that that's what I really wanted to do. And I took my uh, first master's test in 1990, and I did not pass. Um, I had a really good, strong performance in theory, and they probably, they said they probably would have passed me because it was that close. Um, but I didn't have a strong uh, um, tasting or service. Hmm. So over the course of the next uh, three years, and I got I got my uh, service the following year, tasting the next year, and then I went in to have a, have a go at my final theory before I had to reset. If you don't pass, you know, from the time you pass your first part, you have three years to, to take two more tests. Okay. So once you pass your theory now, then you've got three years to pass your uh, theory, or do you pass your tasting and your service. And your service. So that was accomplished in 1993, and I was teaching. Uh, back then, they used to haze you. Uh, so my <laughs> hazing went on for about 21 minutes. Uh, by the time it was over, my knees were so weak I could hardly stand. Oh, uh, it's like a fraternity? <laughs> it was very much like a fraternity, except wow. that you, know, you didn't get to, in a fraternity, they get to pick you. Uh, okay. This one you have to earn. There is a difference, <laughs> a slight difference. But I had earned it, and, um, and I've been teaching ever since. And I now have mentored uh, partially throughout their they're um, trying to gain the master sommelier. Uh, 38 masters mm -hmm. I have uh, mentored. Wow. Hopefully we get a few more in two weeks. That's, he really That's is the Yoda lot, of master right? sommelier. Well, there's, there's other people that have uh, mentored with more people. So, okay. So as chefs, this is what we're really interested in is mm -hmm. when pairing, what are you looking at in the dish? Are you looking at the spices? Are you looking at the category of food? You know, whether it's seafood or meat. H how do you, I, I guess, what are some of the tricks in, in pairing wines with entrees? Well, I learned it a little bit differently than what um, some of the people ha today have. Uh, there's a lot more information today, and there's a few more terms. Uh, umani. Umami. Umami yeah. wasn't around back then, we, we knew about the term, but it hadn't really established itself yet. But basically it's bittersweet, salty, and acid. And okay. what you're trying to do is either do a like-like or contrast it. Okay. Or, and there's various different ways. And then you could look at the texture, mm -hmm. uh, both the dish. Normally we're trying to pair it to the strongest part of the dish, whether that be the sauce or whether it be the protein that's on it or whatever is in the dish. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you're trying to either pair it so it's, uh, we used to call it the perfect marriage. Okay. Where everything just goes together so well in your mouth and neither flavor of the wine or the food dominates. Mm. Okay. They just work together well. And then uh, for another type of pairing, we like refreshing cleansing because when you eat, it's just like, go ahead and smell three times right now. And on your third time, you can't smell anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. Right? So it's the same thing with your palate. If you're not refreshing your palate after every bite, you're not getting that first fresh mm. bite every sure. time. So we cleanse the palate in between with wine. Right. So that would be, normally be a high acid wine. 
and okay. it just cleanses your palate, and then that next bite is just like the first. Right. So that would be another way. And then okay. there's another one called Synergy, where you have two foods, or a food and a wine, and when they come together, they come up with an entirely different flavor. Wow. An example like, uh, of that would be Stilton and Port, and you usually come up with butterscotch. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So there's all of those little things that go on, too. And it's just you gain a lot of knowledge by being out there on the floor and helping people. And there's no better, you know, I'm many years down the road past that now, but that instant gratification really makes you feel special when somebody says, I've never had that wine before. It's awesome. And, well, they haven't had it because they haven't expanded their range. Right. right. And, uh, and the same thing goes with food and wine pairing. Yeah. Um, it's actually, you know, the, the technicality of it is that whatever you enjoy is what you should have. Mm-hmm. Right. And you shouldn't just listen to the sommeliers blindly. But, however, every once in a while they come up with some good things, good items. So mm-hmm. on that topic... Um, are there certain rules, like this is definitely in cooking, but there's certain rules that are meant to be broken. So for instance, uh, you know, we don't have, like we're not master sommeliers by any stretch of the imagination or one experts in that way or even close. Mm-hmm. So we know the basics, which is, you know, you pair whites with like lighter meats and Fish. you pair reds yeah. with, you know, steaks. And But are there certain things where you're just kind of like, you know what? That's a stupid role. Like, you know. Well, um, can you just totally buck the trend and buck the role? Like red wine, we, ice cubes, and red wines. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's different. But that's okay too. Actually, Diane Keaton is making this red wine because she loves red wine. That is really meant to be diluted. With oh it's wow, a how interesting! In alcohol. I've had that at Border Girl actually. <laughs> she, she likes that. I love Diane. She <laughs> likes she likes her ice and whatever people want. Right, right. There are no real big rules that you have to follow. I mean, it's not like etiquette school or, or something like that. This world has really come together and there's a lot of different tangents okay. today. Uh-huh. Right, right, right. Back when I first started, there was a lot of rules. Right. right. But they've been broken down over the years. Red Wine with Fish is the name of a book written by Joshua Wesson. Uh-huh. Okay. So if you ever see it in print, it's it was circa about 1991, 1992, I think. Great years. And and he just, uh, you know, with red wine, with light red wine mm-hmm. that's chilled, okay. fish goes great. Any uh, fish or um, certain? No, certain, uh, you know, like, like salmon. Uh, salmon, grilled salmon goes oh, yeah. very well because uh, the grilling gives it a little bit of bitterness. And mm-hmm. that bitterness is offset by the bitterness in the of red wine. The tannins. So once again, you're looking for a little bit more acid. Uh, so it's acid's your friend when it comes to food and wine pairing. Okay, acid. So what are some basic tips? So we, we talked about that quote from Jerry Seinfeld in the beginning, which I feel like so many people think but are afraid to say because they go to some great restaurant and they have no idea because uh-huh. the menu's humongous, especially nowadays. Um, what are some tips, like some basic ones where, you know, you could use, that you'd have like a mini repertoire of right. like tricks or, you know, that, for where the, you don't look like an asshole. Yeah, for the complete <laughs> beginner. Yeah. You know, how do you build well, up your repertoire? Well, you know, once again, when you're looking at a table, from my perspective, you're looking at every 
person's meal and okay. they may not be similar. True, mm-hmm. yeah. So my tricks are to have a couple of reliable uh, whites and a couple of reliable reds. Okay. Mm-hmm. That'll pretty much go with everything. For reds, I like Chianti or Zinfandel. Okay. Okay. Because they and really, in uh, <laughs> Rioja as well, and they actually, they'll work with just about everything. Okay. Now for whites, uh, I really enjoy, um, my go-to is Riesling. And I know a lot of people haven't kind of figured out Riesling. Is it sweet? Is it dry? Right. Uh, Germany, who, 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 who sends this over a huge amount of their sweet wines, mm-hmm. which are actually very good pairings with a lot of different foods. Um, they actually drink most of their trocken wines over there. Mm-hmm. They have went more towards the dry side. Right. Now, when I say dry, there's still nine grams of residual sugar in there. Okay. But the acid is so high that you don't taste any sweetness. Huh. You might feel a little roundness in your palate, but it, it, the acid is just, it would be overbearing if there wasn't just that little bit of residual sugar in it. I've been hearing that a lot lately, actually. Yeah. To me, it feels like a trend, like a wine trend. Okay. That people are trying to drink more Rieslings. In general, they're trying to give like more light to Riesling. Right. Because I think everybody, not I shouldn't say everybody, a lot of people in America will resort to Chardonnay because that's what they, they know in okay. whites. You well, know? Chardonnay. Chardonnay and Cab. You know? It's like, those are the white and the red. In 2002, Chardonnay became the most popular varietal over white Zinfandel here okay. in America. Huh. But it's always been a great cocktail wine. And okay. Some people actually think it's a meal in the bottle itself. Hmm. But I actually find Chardonnay going with two things that you probably wouldn't think of, and that is steak. Okay. With grilled steak, it's marvelous. There you go, mm-hmm. breaking the rules. Yeah. <laughs> and as well, um, tomato sauce. Whoa. As long as it doesn't have too much salt Interesting. in it. Interesting. So Chardonnay and buttery lasagna, Chardonnay yeah. and spaghetti. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Wow. So it would be good with pizza then? Yeah, it would be. So I've never had white wine with pizza. Yeah. So I, I see all another trend too that people are moving towards rose. Yes, that's a thing. Oh, but I think it's please. a millennial. I think it's like a right. millennial. All right, now this is thing. where my. Ah, uh, uh-huh, I like this it. This is where my, co- my opinion is going to come in. Please. Um, I don't. Well, you're both probably know about Nouveau Beaujolais. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Yeah. The third, the Thursday in in November. Well, that actually came out and was very beneficial for um, wine farmer or grape farmers because they could make a wine and get an instant return on it. They didn't have to wait two or three years. Right, mm-hmm. much less so expensive. It was I would a imagine. Cash flow, yeah. And that's what most rosé is today. Cash flow. Cash flow. And, and to me, it's, there are some outstanding rosés in the world. And we're starting to find some of them. We're finding our way there, but there are far too many rosés. And, you know, it's kind of tough when you're sitting out here in Las Vegas. You're not really sitting out in, in next to a stream or anything like right. that, where rosé really is romantic and or o- overlooking the Mediterranean right. or the Pacific, for that Watching matter. Watching a sunset. Watching a sunset. Yeah. Now, yes, I can get behind that, but right. there's so many different types of rosés out there now, and everybody has one because they're trying for that cash flow. So for our, us poor people in the wholesale business, and, you know, if you don't take somebody's rosé, and we just, I mean, there's way too many of them. <laughs> 
at any rate. And I'm not even going to talk about the quality because I think some people just hurry and rush and put it in there and it turns out to be a pretty color and then it sells. Right. Uh, that's it's the color it's that pink, sells. It's pink. It's girl. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I saw it. Not necessarily just the women, but uh, <laughs> right. But now, when you're actually talking about some great rosés, uh, there are some in Oregon, and there's um, there's quite a few in uh, Provence and Bandol in mm-hmm. France. On that subject, what's the coolest part of your job and the worst part? Is the worst part like when people try to throw those trends on you, or, yeah. right? Well, I, <laughs> or blended? I, I kind of wear a lot of different hats here at Southern and uh, Southern Glaciers, and uh, the part of my job that's always I work in the wine industry. And there's always goals, and we really have to in order to produce. We're a sales and right. uh, sales institution. So you have to figure out those, and that's sometimes the tough part. Um, there's, you know, the customer is always correct. I have to deal with that a lot where I may be talking to somebody who doesn't really fully understand as much about what direction they're trying to take. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sometimes is challenging. The best time that I have is always going to be uh, tasting and working with people. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, I've really gotten away from that instant gratification, unfortunately, uh, with some of the mechanisms in this town. Uh, you don't really get instant gratification other than when you see a student pass. Oh. Right. I can imagine. Super cool. And that's not really instant. Sometimes, some cases, I've been working with them for three or four years. Yeah. Which almost time. makes it sweeter, though. Yeah, right. I know. Like, a, you're a real mentor. It's a, Hard earned. So Psalm the Documentary, we talked about it a little bit. How often do people bring that up in conversations with you? Um, I actually love to hear about it because a lot of those people I mentored and, uh, and it continues. Uh, you know, one of the main characters, Ian Colville, uh, mm-hmm. his first trip to Europe was with Ira. Oh. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> and it's not his last either. Yeah. But uh, it, was a, it was a great trip. We had, um, I think... One and a half minutes of intensity between the two of us, and the rest of the time was just like we were kids in a candy store. I can wow. imagine, <laughs> right? I know. A, we had a great trip, and he had learned quite a little bit on the trip, and as did I. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one thing we're always learning. Does it feel to you? I love that documentary. I love the series of documentaries. It was really, honestly, the first time you know, I had seen what you guys go through to take that master psalm exam. And it's so interesting to me. Mm-hmm. How real is it to you? Is it a very well, that real was portrayal? Real. As a matter of fact, that first one, um, I was actually there the day that he passed. Uh, he and I uh, went up and had a, I do believe it was tequila or mezcal. I'm pretty sure it was mezcal right after he passed, just so he can calm down his nerves. Yeah. Um, so you saw it up to a point where he he didn't pass that time, but he came back the next year and passed, and then you saw that to close out the movie. Interesting. <clears throat> I thought it was actually well done, all of them. So in Psalm 3, the experts talk about the rarest bottles of their career. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, right. So can you think of one for yourself where you're just thought, wow, I'm actually drinking this. 
Well, I was in Florida, and I just got my first credit card, and I was down visiting a friend who is who had a workshop in Fort Lauderdale over off of the Commercial Avenue. Mm-hmm. And he says, Ari, you should go over and check out this little house. They got bars on the window, and, you know, it's just a linoleum in there. But you should check it out. They got some wines in there. So I walked in, and I go, wow. And I called my wife, and I said, I have to buy these wines. <laughs> <laughs> right? I think it. I've heard that on my phone before. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Uh, so <laughs> I wound up buying four <laughs> bottles of Romani Conti, Romani Conti. And by the way, I'm not du- being duplicious there. I am talking about Romani Conti as the name of the, uh, the uh, winery. And then mm-hmm. Romani Conti is the name of the vineyard as well. Okay. 1964. Yeah, for $225 a piece, and then I bought six bottles of 1978 Mouton. I still have two 1978 Moutons left, but the um, Romani Conti on the last bottle was in 1997. I had it at the Taste of Vale with 18 other people, or I was the 18th person. And so I shared it, and it's one of the longest finishes I've ever had. The finish was over five minutes. What? And you didn't even want to, you didn't want to even taste the wine because the nose was just so glorious huh. that it, it just sent you into uh, your brain into all these. It's a sensory fly, experience. Uh, sensory experiences, right? yes. Almost like, like a drug. I would say fireworks. <laughs> fireworks. But, and it would be yeah. that because that's what it was. Huh. And then you'd take a sip, and then five minutes later, it would kind of dissipate a little bit. And then you more. It certainly was a very remarkable bottle, but I've been very fortunate to have a lot of different uh, great bottles of wine in my life. That's wow. one of the reasons. If you'll remember, when I started, it was the Ice Ages mm-hmm. and uh, oh, drinking wine. <laughs> and there was a lot of great wines out there, and they weren't as expensive as they are now. Uh, that Romani Conti now, I think it's somewhere around... Five to eight thousand dollars a bottle on release, right? So can't afford that. No. On that subject, when you're when you did work with people more hands-on, you know, at a restaurant or maybe even here, how do you get people past the sticker shock of wine nowadays? (laughs) Well, most people that are in that realm um, don't have it. Don't have sticker shot, no. Uh, and you know, and my and now there's two forces at work here because first of all, if you work for one of these large casinos, you have to make money, right? So your job is to probably upsell a little bit, but it still has to be within reason, right? I mean, today we don't get the sticker shock that you used to when the sommeliers were. The Tostavan, or what we used to call ashtrays around their neck, mm-hmm. that was a sure sign that he was going to try and talk you into another wine, uh, an upper-end wine. Wait, what does that mean, the ashtrays around their neck? Uh, that's a Tostavan. That was a, it's used in the cellar Okay. Uh, so that it gets all the light, it reflects all the light, so you can pour some wine in there and you can see through it, and uh, it gives you a good idea in a cellar in a dark room. Wow. Oh, that sounds like some vampire stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was very popular testable. back in the yeah, right? 80s, the 70s, and 80s, okay. and the early 90s. Because I've never seen that. That's cool. <laughs> yes, but you know, we've done away with that, and that's a good thing. Maybe. And then they would always taste it before they would give it to you. Oh. Uh-huh. So some people got a little... And, and today, the, the better restaurants do taste the wine before they present it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because we want to know whether it's 
good or bad. Definitely. How important is it to smell, sniff, get your nose inside? Because I've had people tell me, you know, get your nose all the way in there. Well, not um, too all the way. <laughs> well, remember, we just did that little exercise where I had just smell mm-hmm. three times. So you know that you have to change that so that you can go back and get other details. Uh, to me, we start off with the sight first. The sight can tell you so much about a wine. It can tell you whether it's a thick skin or a thin skin grape. It can uh, tell you, first of all, whether it's red or white. Mm-hmm. And, and don't think that just doing that, you can get one of those little black cups and put a red wine in there, and you might think it's a white wine. Hmm. I mean, it's very deceptive if you, mm-hmm. don't, if you, don't, if you can't use your eyes. Uh, you can also tell the age of the wine or get very close by looking at it. So there's a huh. whole bunch of stuff that goes in before you start smelling the wine. Or alcohol okay. volume, actually, by legs. Uh, uh, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yes, yeah. yes, very correct. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole world of getting to know and looking at wines before you smell them. And then you smell them, and now wines should taste like they smell. Do they okay. always? Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. If a wine is very young... And it's been open for a little while. It'll show a little bit more. Sometimes they come out a little clumsy and a little uh, dumb. Right. Um, but, you know, then then you just swirl for the life of you because you've only got four minutes to decide. Right. <laughs> uh, but, um, and then uh, you talk about the finish of the wine and you talk about all the characteristics in it. And it should be fairly similar from your nose to your palate. When you're at home, do you always decant? Or with a red, or are there times when you don't decant? There are times when I go home and I'll take a bottle and I'll pour off a glass and I'll let it sit there. Uh, I don't decant every wine at home because sometimes I want to see where a wine goes. Okay. And then that'll tell me how much that I need to decant it. I totally believe in decanting. When I was on the floor, I would decant every wine. Okay. uh, Unless I was 730 and we had 300 covers in a, in a 100-cover restaurant. Right, right. We know what that's like. Uh, yes, especially over there at uh, Bizarre Meats. But I think it's uh, important to decant every bottle, simply because if you're decanting an old bottle, you have to remember this is an organism that's been in the bottle, and it kind of needs to stretch when it gets out. <laughs> right. The best way for it to oh. stretch is a decanter. Wow. I love that oh, metaphor. <laughs> First time like, I've get ever up, heard, do a sun salutation yeah, right? with your wine. <laughs> right. First time I've ever heard um, wine being referred to as an organism, actually. Well, it's perfect. Well, it's, yeah, it's, it's perfect. It's living. It's, yeah. It is living. I mean, yeah. um, and you know, when a, when a wine is young, it needs to get that air to expand it and get it to start releasing some of the. It, there is a bottled aroma, and then there's a bouquet. Uh-huh. Aromas are in the beginning. Bouquet okay. is after it's been in the sure. bottle for a long time. Okay. okay, gotcha, gotcha. So it goes through that transition. What you're trying to do is you, if you have a young bottle, which most people drink young bottles, and 95% of the uh, bottles are drunk right. when they're young, they, it just needs a little time to open up. And okay. Now you, you, we are Americans. We don't have that patience that they yeah. do in Europe. <laughs> the instant gratification so it's, yeah, culture. It's pop and go. Right. Uh, but which is all in. Like I said, there are no rules in my life uh, about wine. Go with the flow. Right. Go with the flow. I have a question. Yes. So, 
for dinner parties, like what would a good like an acceptable wine to you know to bring or gift out? Is there like a price point or is it um, just like a preference? Like a casual party. Or, like, you know, you know. Uh, I, I drink a lot of bottles between 15 and $25. Okay. There's a lot of great wines really? in right. that segment, mm-hmm. but you have to look for them. There is a lot of, you know, there's, there's an old idiom that we have in the off-premise wine sales is stack it high and let it fly. Okay. Uh-huh. Those are the type of displays that you just walk in there, you something catches your eye, and you take the bottles out. Right. Okay. Well, in that category, probably back on the shelf somewhere, there is probably a lot better wines to drink. Hmm. But you know, you, you, first of all, you, if you don't have the knowledge, how would you know? Right. Right. So that's that. That to me is okay. Fine. Whatever it is that you want to drink, enjoy. Right. Yeah, because I find myself walking around Total Wine a lot, and I'm like, (laughs) or Lee's, and just, what do I bring? Like, is fifty dollars acceptable? Or is yeah, no, you can get a great bottle of wine for twenty five that drink better than some of those fifty dollars. You know, I was like, but that that takes a little bit more. Knowledge. Yeah. Right. I feel like I'm researching all the time. Because I, I don't want to bring something that, you know, they'll insult my host. Right. <laughs> right. Well, first of all, what does your host like? Exactly. There's well, that too. That's true. Yeah. That's true. And what, what are you having for dinner? Right. Are you that's going true. to a barbecue or are you Cause going it, to a fancy meal? Because it does meal? make a difference there. Yeah, right, right, But like right. I said, those four wines and the other white wine that I wanted to mention is my other go-to white, white wine other than Riesling is Chenin Blanc. Oh, really? Chenin Blanc. People Whoa. don't really know yeah. about that. I've only had a few. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, wow. Chenin Blanc from Loire, and, and there's some great Chenin Blancs, some Chenin Blancs from America coming out and circulating now as really? well. Really? So from America, you? where? Uh, Sonoma. <laughs> okay. Oh well, and actually, there's some up in the Amador foothills as well. Okay. Wow. Um, advice, since you are a mentor for young people, there's so many nowadays that have seen the documentary, like you said, or just love wine and want to learn more about it, and they want to become sommeliers. My first advice is to pay that $100 and join the Guild site. Okay. Mm -hmm. Guild of Sommeliers. It's the best, uh, I'd have to say for the wine world, it's probably the most important thing you could do for yourself. Is that a one-time fee? And it is a, a year. Okay. Um, until you become a master sommelier. Okay. And then it's free. And then it's free. Okay. Um, <laughs> There's only that, though, Louie. But right. you, yeah, you'd right. be yeah. surprised that when I go to teach, I'm on that site uh-huh. day in and day out. Interesting. It provides and you all that resource. Now, remember, when I was coming up and back in the late 80s, early 90s, we had to send away for books. Uh-huh. And it would take three to six months to get it. And then you would have to go through the book, and if you had any questions, you would have to send a snail mail letter. <laughs> right. And six months later, you would get an answer. Right. So, I mean, we now today you have all of this in one site. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm right. not saying that's Excellent the only resource. site you need to, uh, to read. Of course. I am saying that this is a basic tool that has to be in your toolkit. Yeah. And then to read... Reading about wine is fascinating because it ties so many things together. You can talk about chemistry, biology, history, geography, geology, right. and it brings all of these sciences together for you right here in this glass. Mm-hmm. And that's how you really get to know wine. So I'm a super nerd and I love books. What would you recommend for somebody who doesn't necessarily want to be a sommelier, but 
is really interested in learning more about wine. Now, you may laugh at this, but these two people that wrote the book, um, Mary Ewing, wrote Wines for Dummies. Mm, really? And I can guarantee you, if you read that book three to five times, uh, every time it's like peeling that onion, you're going to get to another layer because things wow. will start making Wine for dummies. sense. Or the Keep It Simple, stupid, KISS series, yeah. There's an, they have one, one of those, And then, too. of course, uh, Windows of the World uh, by Kevin Cirelli is oh, all, yeah. always pretty good, too. But I, I really think for most people, the Wines for Dummies, it, it will teach you. You will not become a wine expert, but you'll be familiar with the, with the jargon, and you'll know what they're talking about when they talk about these different regions. Right. I'm literally getting on the, Amazon after this. Yeah, I cool. found that book uh, truly very beneficial mm -hmm. for everybody. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Something as simple as that, right? We're going to switch gears to On the Fly, which Yay. is our 60-second segment where we ask quick questions and we have okay. quick answers. So On the Fly with Ira Harmon from Southern Glaciers Wine and Spirits. We're going to set our clock for 60 seconds, starting now. Last wine you drank. was last night, and, um, yeah, was a Spanish wine. Then uh, <laughs> this wine was a Reserva. Actually, it's Portuguese, Parakita. Uh, Parakeeta is, I don't remember the exact uh, blend on it, but I was selling that for like three, four dollars for the regular Parakeeta back in 1990. And actually, we served it at the restaurant in the 1980s. And this is a reserva from 2009, and I just found the complexity. I had let it sit overnight because I had a glass on Thursday night, and I let the bottle sit in my wine cellar until the next day, and it was just awesome. Layers right. of complexity. Cat or dog person? Are you a cat or a dog person? Both. Yes. <laughs> Hobby outside of wine? What, what there's life outside of wine? <laughs> Great. No, we're going to go on. We didn't get very far, so yeah, let's do a couple on. more. Yeah. <laughs> Best tool for your job? Uh, wine opener. Okay, death row meal, what would it be? I'm sorry? Death row meal. Oh, uh, well, it'd have to be about nine or ten courses in order to fit it all in. But you know those little crops we were talking about? Yeah. I'd yeah, probably start out with those. Wow. You're awesome. a seafood person? Yeah, I love seafood, yes. Sommelier pet peeve. Something you see that you're just, you know, it just... Oh. Uh, well, there's there are a lot of arrogant people <laughs> out there. Uh, but, you know, it's I'm not to be a judge. So right. it doesn't matter uh, if they want to come in and do their thing where they want to want to say that the wine is corked and I have to take the bottle away when it's not corked. That's a pet peeve, but <laughs> I do it anyway. OK, favorite wine region. Ooh. Oh, that's really tough. Uh, probably Burgundy. It's mm, a good one. Joe likes Burgundy. Do you remember? Yeah. Joe yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, favorite local Las Vegas restaurant right now. Oh, I can't answer that on, on radio. <laughs> <laughs> Without advertising. Uh, no, I can't answer that. Louis? Uh, food that you can't live without. Your favorite, favorite food. Lobster. Ooh, buttery. What would you pair with lobster? Um, I normally like uh, white burgundy, but uh, I've had it with many different wines. Mm. White burgundy. 
Chardonnay sometimes tends to be a little bit too oaky from America to okay. really bring out the true flavors. But then again, I've had some winning combinations with that as well. I can imagine because like if you go butter and buttery, right. you get like a super buttery <laughs> yeah. right. no. combination of things. No, Can't remember, go wrong with that. We like the refreshing cleansing going <laughs> on too. Ira, thank you so much for joining us. Southern yes. Glaciers Wine and Spirits. Truly been my pleasure. Master Thanks sommelier. Right. Learned a lot of stuff today right, that we did right. not know. Louis, how do they get at us? You can get us on our Instagram at Two Sharp Chefs, on our Facebook at Two Sharp Chefs and a Microphone, and our email address at Two Sharp Chefs at gmail.com. For Ira and Louis, I'm Lorraine. Have a great rest of your day.